0: We're getting there. Yes, there we are. I don't know how you felt when you listened to that reading. It introduces somebody, a shadowy figure, into our world. In a sense, our thought world. It gets introduced in that passage. Let me remind you of chapter two, verse three. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. He's talking about the day of the return of Jesus. Will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So what is this rebellion that's on its way? Who is this man of lawlessness, this scary, unknown figure Well, our problem when we come to a passage like this is that Paul said something to the Thessalonians in verse 5. He says, don't you remember that, was when I, that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So he's able to say as he's writing, now you know most of this stuff, so I don't need to tell you in this letter. And we all sit there and go, we don't. What did you tell them? We don't know. It's actually really difficult. What on earth is Paul saying? What is he actually saying? Because there's a lot of gaps in here. It would be easy to try and fill in the gaps. It would be easy to try and fill in the bits that Paul isn't saying. Try and imagine what he taught the Thessalonians. We actually don't have access to that. And to try and make it up is not actually a helpful thing for us to do to try and just fill in the blanks. That kind of speculation isn't helpful. But we do have something. So what actually is Paul saying? What is Paul saying about the return of Jesus? Because that's something he spoke about in 1 Thessalonians. It's something that obviously the church in Thessalonica is still having problems with. What is he saying? What can we say? Yes, I understand this. I'm not just filling in blanks. I'm not making up the bits that are missing. I'm actually listening to what Paul says. What is he saying? And why does he say it? What's the reason that Paul has for raising this scary figure, this man of lawlessness, with the church in Thessalonica? Why is that a helpful thing for him to do? Why is it an important thing for him to do? And how does it help us? Because that's what we really want to know, isn't it? As we come before God's word, God's living and active word that reads us as we read it, how do we listen to this passage? Why do we need to hear it? I've called what we're looking at tonight the final gambit. And as we go through, you'll understand why. But as we prepare to open this section of beginning of two Thessalonians together, would you join me in prayer as we ask God to give us wisdom and understanding to hear and understand His word? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that there is nothing in your word that is futile or useless. There is nothing in your word that does not come back to you having achieved the purposes for which you spoke. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts to hear your word, to receive your word, and to obey your word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at those three questions, and we're going to look at them in order, so bear that in mind. We're going to start with what Paul is saying. What is Paul saying? Now, to give you an idea of the complexity of this passage, anybody ever heard of a guy called St. Augustine? Anybody ever heard of him? He was the bishop of Hippo, not the animal. Um, Hippo Regius was a town in North Africa in what is now Algeria. And this is what he said after looking at this passage. He said, Paul was unwilling to make an explicit statement because he said that they, that is the Thessalonians, knew what he was referring to, referred to but even with hard work, we are not able. And so he confessed. Frankly, I don't know what he means. <laughs> Thanks, St. <Saint> Augustine. <laughs> Big help. So what do we know? What actually do we know well let's pick it up again at those verses don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come this day of the lord that we've been hearing about in one thessalonians that is coming will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed so this idea of the day that is coming is an important thing. Paul has been talking to the church in Thessalonica saying, you know, those who've died, it's not like they've missed out on everything that God has to offer. They haven't missed out. God is good. And, and those who, have, uh, who are still alive, they're not going to miss out either. If you are in Christ, you have a future with Christ and that is something to rejoice in. But there are things that must happen before that day. And the first of these things, we only have two words to describe because Paul doesn't unpack anything more than these two words. The rebellion. Rebellion is, the actual word is the word for an apostasy. That is a walking away. That's what we know. From there on, we're speculating. But there is a walking away that the Apostle talks about prior to the return of Jesus. A rebellion, a walking away. And I think the implication is not... I don't think he's talking about the non-Christian world here. I think he's talking about those who name themselves believers and who walk away. That's generally the way that that word is used in the New Testament, as a walking away from the community of believers, a rejecting of the message of the gospel from people who claimed to have accepted it. Beyond that, we can't say. So we actually have to set that one aside. Please don't speculate. It doesn't help. Because all you do is come up with something of your own crafting. What we do know is something else. There is a figure who Paul does tell us a bit more about, this man of lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is the word that's used here for somebody who is a a, a rejecter. The law that is being spoken of here as we use this word lawlessness is the idea of actually good order and and, and God's good intentions. This is a person who states his claim on the rejection of that. Now, if you're like me, with such a title, you could populate a very long list of candidates. Because in our world, we see an abundance of people who do that, don't we? Who stake their claim on the rejection of God and what he says on the promotion of things that God does not say. Well, yes, but I think Paul is actually pointing us to an individual This is one thing that I have wrestled with over a long time. I I disagree with some commentators. I don't think this is the same kind of necessarily the same picture as we get in Revelation 13, as it talks about beasts and so on. But I think there is a picture here, probably the same picture that John is referring to when he talks about the fact that many antichrists have come, but the antichrist is coming. One who, who stakes his claim whom takes his stand in rejection of God. And and it's interesting how he's described. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming scriptures. This isn't the first time you've heard this kind of language. This is the language that in the final chapters of Daniel gets applied to a particular king a king in the time of the uh, Greek empire, the, the, the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire. And one of his generals sets up in Syria and his, uh, ra- the, 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 the line that comes from him, the Syrian kings, furnishes one particular king, Antiochus IV, who, who was known as Antiochus Epiphanes because his claim was, when you see me, you have seen God in the flesh. And in Daniel chapter 11, we read this. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. Do you hear echoes there? This idea of a, a thing that must take place, a thing that is ugly, a thing that is godless, a thing that rejects God. It sounds very like what happened with Antiochus. Of course, the problem is, for the Thessalonians, Antiochus' Epiphanes was claims about this figure that are bigger, that go further than Antiochus can answer. So there seems to be... There's One uh, Old Testament scholar put it in terms of the old telescopes. You know, who's ever watched um, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies? There's a wonderful scene where one of the captains comes out and he pulls out his telescope and he extends it out. It's this big, long telescope. And then Johnny Depp comes out and goes... And it's just a tiny little thing. (laughs) Telescopes, particularly in that picture, you, you, you get a thing about that long and then you pull on it and it turns into three segments... And often what happens in the scriptures is you find things that have, as the writer talks about them, they seem to be talking about one thing. But as we see history pan out, it turns into a telescope. turns out to have multiple segments in the same direction. So, for instance, you could pick up Mark chapter 13. And as you read there, you will hear about calamity and destruction. And if you read about the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, you'd be going, yes. But as you read Mark 13, you would say, yes, and? Because it seems to refer to something that is to him for the return of Jesus. It is still a future event. So there's a telescoping, an extending of of that picture. And so for, for Paul, he telescopes. He sees this telescope that was Daniel's picture of one who is coming with great destruction one who is going to take their stand against God and against all he stands for, who will say unheard of things against the God of gods. And it's interesting, as Paul talks about this figure, this man of lawlessness to come, what what does he say? He says, well, the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's a rather... Interesting Once the same word that we get the word apocalypse from. And it isn't the only time it appears in this passage. It's appeared in chapter 1, verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is ap- apocalyptoed, when he's revealed. What is more, we're talking we're told about the coming of the lawless one. The, literally, the parousia of the lawless one. This is the language of Jesus. Does that sound familiar as you read the scriptures? Because it does for me. Passage after passage talks about the work of the enemy and its artificial pretense, imitation of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And so you hear about this lawless one who uses displays of power through signs and wonders, terms that are often used of Jesus, because that's how Satan works. Indeed, if you were to go to the book of Revelation, it talks about... Satan and his minions in terms of fakery. That's what that 666 is. It's not a tattoo you find on people's heads or something like that out of some silly movie. Seven is the number for completeness. Six is the number for fakery. He is fake, fake, fake. And that fakery deceives Because Satan is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. And his message is a lie. So this, this to our favourite 21st century, and you can actually insert every other century as well, theme. Why I'm God, and God doesn't need to be. And that deceit is a deceit that so many in our world are very willing to participate in. And so he deceives those who are perishing, those who reject God. He gives an alternative to. To those who reject God, he gives something to fill in the space with. because the power of lawlessness is already at work. This figure is not going to do something that's absolutely brand new. It's the same thing that happened way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent told Adam and Eve that they could be like God, knowing good and evil. They could supplant him. They could reject him. What do we know about this figure, about this time? We know that at some point there is this picture of a time huge claims with huge impact that are a huge lie. And we know that that spirit is already at work all around us and has been since the fall. The temptation to turn away from the truth And embrace the lie. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, puts it well. As people gather around themselves, teachers who will say whatever their itching ears want to hear, to a people deceived, they look for a deceiver. And they find one. Paul's picture of this shadowy figure still remains a little bit shadowy, because Evidently, he said some things to the church in Thessalonica that we just don't have access to. Like like Augustine, we've got to, at some points, throw our hands up and say, don't know. But he's not saying it for no reason. As he puts this... Figure before them, he's not actually telling them it so that they can be afraid. It's not so that something can pit monsters on our list of things to be afraid of. In fact, it's quite the contrary. Paul has good reasons for raising this with the church of Thessalonica. So let's look at why he says it. And there are two reasons that Paul gives for why he takes them through this message about this shadowy figure who is to come. Number one, he wants to encourage them in a time of persecution. Number two, he wants to correct a false claim. Let's look at them. He wants to encourage them in a time of persecution. Chapter one, verses three and four. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are suffering. See, one of the problems with some of the constructions of history that put a big bogeyman at the end is it's hard to explain why for a people suffering, they're suffering and what it means to get worse. I think there is a picture of it getting worse, but I think the challenge is there to explain suffering now because it's pretty horrendous. If you live in places like the north of Nigeria, you will see what it is to suffer for being a Christian. When I was in Rwanda, at the beginning of this year, I sat down for breakfast with two ministers from the north of Nigeria And the question I had in my mind as I chatted to them was, I wonder how long, I wonder how long you will last in this life. The bishops of northern Nigeria say when they give somebody a license, they're handing them a death warrant. Persecution is a very real thing because that same rejection of our God, of his goodness, Good purposes for this world is so big and so at work. And for the Thessalonians, they were tasting that, they were experiencing it. Read what happens in the book of Acts as the whole city rises up and drags people into the marketplace. It's pretty horrible. Now, we don't know what happens after the book of Acts because the book of Acts keeps following Paul, but I think the hint from two Thessalonians is the the, the suffering's not over. The persecution's not over. And Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians that persecution actually is part of the wicked work of the enemy. And there's good news in the midst of it. Because he says all this is evidence. It's evidence. When you see this persecution, it is evidence. It is evidence of a couple of things. It is evidence that God's judgment is right. God's judgment is right. As people vent their anger and their rage against the people of God, it is evidence that God's judgment on a world that rejects him is actually right, isn't it? The sixth, God is just. God is just. He's not unfair. He's not dumping something. He's not, uh, you know, venting his anger on a world just randomly. I'm going to bless these people. I'm going to make life miserable for those ones. There is a justice to what God does in his judgment. A justice that is good news for the persecuted. Because on the one hand, it means that those who take their stand against God don't get away with it. They don't get off scot-free, too powerful to be able to do anything about untouchable. Too much money, too much influence, too much power, nothing you can do. Well, there's nothing you can do. That's why he says in verse 8 that he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The God who has offered a rescue to a world in darkness, when that world turns around and rejects the rescue, they're left with the consequences of their darkness. That is justice to a world in rebellion against God where he has, by his outrageous grace, offered to rebels the opportunity to come home. When they reject that, there is a justice in getting what they deserve, isn't there? For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. So they will believe the lie. So that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now I want you to notice something. Because if you look at this and you find it a little disturbing that God's sending people delusions, just remember the last line. These are people who delight in wickedness. These are people who've already created that vacuum. There is no God. I have no, I can ignore him. This is the picture that Paul talks about in Romans where he talks about handing over people to their own sinfulness. This is the deceived being handed over to deception. The wicked handed over to their wickedness. The deluded handed over to their delusion. And it's effective. It's one of the sad things about justice is that you get what you deserve. And for those who claim that they want nothing to do with God, what is the great thing, the terrible thing that God does? He lets them believe it and then feel what it is, to have nothing to do with the God who is life. There is a justice in what God does. But just as there is a justice in what God does in handing the godless over to their godlessness, there is a justice in what God does in preserving his people. And so he talks about the evidence not only pointing to the fact that God's judgment is right, but also the fact that as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. See, so this is the danger, in a sense, of that rapture theology we're talking about. Remember when we were talking about the floaty Christians in, in 1 Thessalonians? And it's an escape theology. It's the idea that before things get nasty, we'll all get to just leave, That's not what the New Testament says. It actually says that God keeps you through trial, not from. And in keeping you through trial, it is still part of God's incredible testimony to this world. As Christians suffer and endure, the testimony to a world that has rejected him, has has been incredibly powerful, both in terms of judgment and in terms of mercy. People have heard the news of the gospel and seen Christians suffering and enduring and persevering. And God has used that to call people home, to call people back to himself, Because God's promise, as we saw from 1 Thessalonians, is that we will get to be with Jesus for all eternity. Any of this stuff cannot touch, cannot harm, cannot destroy the incredible promise that is to come that we get to be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. That is the the rock solid promise. And so he gives relief to you who are troubled. just as he gives trouble to those who trouble you. He brings comfort. I want to encourage you as you look at what Paul says to the Thessalonians. We are in a world that does not like the language of judgment at all. But when you take the language of judgment out of the Bible you actually take some of the hope out of the Bible. You actually take some of the hope out of the Bible. And it's an interesting thing that the people who most hate the idea of the language of judgment in the Bible are not the people who are enduring persecution. It's usually those who are fairly comfortable. But for those who know what it is to suffer, like the Thessalonians do, they patient that those who remain faithful to him in spite of suffering he lifts up, that those who persist in their hostility and, and, and hatred of God, of his king, of his people, do not escape because they're too powerful to be prosecutors. There is no escape from the justice, the perfect justice of God. And there is comfort, a right comfort, And the idea of a God who is just. Don't wash it out. But there's a second thing that Paul is doing. He's also correcting a false claim. Because one of the things that had happened for the Thessalonians is people were going around and saying, oh, Jesus has already come back. Didn't you read that? It was in one of Paul's letters. Paul's going, no, it wasn't. I don't know whether people were circulating false letters, whether they were just making false claims in Paul's name, but... Paul wants none of it. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter. You can see how all of that can happen. Look at this issue. This idea that troubled the church in Thessalonica, that Jesus had already come back. Anybody been worried about that one? It's not really a massive one in this world that Jesus has already come back. And somehow, we didn't get the memo. But it was an issue for them. What I hear a lot of for us is whether Jesus is coming back. And when. And people have a fascination in how. But it's an interesting thing that as Paul takes up this language, the stuff he's saying to the Thessalonians, we can be listening to as well. Let no one deceive you. Don't let people who love this sensationalism latch onto it and take you down a path of error. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking, it's just following the latest book or whatever it is. Too many people have taken bits of the Bible, thrown them into a blender and hit frappe and come out with, hey, presto, look, I've got a complete scenario. Cherry picking all over the place. No. At all times, we want to bring what we're hearing to the word of God. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, hey guys, keep this back in its context. Because there is a power, there is a a proper time. If you want to know what's holding the man of lawlessness back, so do I. Put it on your list for heaven. Paul doesn't tell us. This is another one of those ones we don't know possibly it's something to do with daniel's thing of one who restrains the, the uh, michael of, it may be a reference to some of daniel but we're guessing we don't know what we do know the point that paul is trying to make is that the case that's being built here that makes them afraid that something has happened and they've missed out, as though the message of the gospel is not actually enough, as though the good news that in Jesus Christ you are rescued out of the domain of darkness and brought into the domain of the sun, us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that message gets undermined by these um, odd, fanciful words. I guess, in the end, we, we need to hear what the Apostle Peter says about Paul. In 2 Peter, as he's talking about the return of Jesus, Peter says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking them in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, Yes? Now, just before you take too much comfort in that, there's a bit of a technical word here. And it's the word that goes back to oracles, particularly in the Greek world. So there was a thing called the um, Oracle of Delphi. Anybody ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? Some people have heard of that. And there's a famous thing where one of the kings went to the Oracle of Delphi and said, oh, great oracle, I want to go to war. Will I be successful? And the answer of the oracle is, was, if you go to war, a great nation will be destroyed. <laughs> Which one? The enemy? Or the king? B, to take some of Paul's words, and people have seen it and done it, and distort them, change them, shift them, just like they did in the church of Thessalonica as they started claiming Paul had said these things and they'd shifted them, made them fit some scenario that they wanted to push out. Well, Peter says that's the sort of thing that ignorant and unstable people do, as they've been doing to all the other scriptures. So how does that all help us? as we've watched this idea of a, a figure that is coming, a time that is coming of, of rebellion, that we're even now tasting, we've seen it all around us, we've been seeing it for thousands of years, of a, of a message of judgment that is hope for the people of God, hope of vindication, of a warning not to believe a lie. Well, I guess that's the first place that we want to land, is there is a lie out there. There is a lie that this, what Paul refers to as the spirit of lawlessness, puts forward. We hear it in the 21st century in these, Franklin, but most of these quotes, the quote and the name um, may possibly align, possibly, but usually don't. Uh, it's usually just finding famous person and sticking them on quote. Uh, you can do anything except my... Isn't that a really popular idea today? You are completely sovereign over your world. You can be who you want to be. You can do what you want to do. Really? Great. I'd love to be able to walk through walls. Do you reckon it's going to work? Seriously, if I set my mind to it enough? I don't. I'd love to be able to fly. I don't mean in a plane. I always said, "Who had dreams of flying when they were kids?" I had dreams of flying. I'd love to be able to fly. I can't. No matter how much I set my mind to it. But there's this fiction that is out in our world, this lie, that says you are God. You can create your worlds. You can be the one who shapes everything around you. You are God. You are not, sorry. You're not. It's a lie. Don't buy into the lie that our world pushes, the lawless lot since the beginning, when he said, you will not surely die. Don't believe the lie. But also don't fear the foe. Don't fear the foe. Don't mistake what Paul is doing here. He's not telling them about the man of lawlessness to make them scared. They're already scared. They're scared they've missed out that Jesus came back and they didn't get the memo. They're already scared. He's not telling them to scare them. He's doing the opposite. He's saying, don't worry. Right. Till this guy comes, Jesus Jesus is coming back after that. You don't need to worry. Don't stress. He's actually offering the words of comfort, not fear. Don't fear the foe. When Sybil and I were uh, headed out west, um, we went to this place. Alcumba Kunji Lakes National Park, and we went to Kunji Lake. Now, we could have stopped right here. Where the sign was. After all, we'd got a photo of it. It'd be pretty stupid, wouldn't it? To fixate on the sign and miss the reality. To fixate on the, the thing that told us what was coming and miss what was coming. That's in the middle of the desert. That's in the Lakey Desert. And it's this gorgeous lake with birds everywhere. It was spectacular. What a stupid thing to have stopped at the sign and not gone on. What a stupid thing to stop and fixate on the sign that precedes the return of Jesus instead of giving your attention to what the sign is pointing to, the glorious coming of the King of Kings. Remember how this shadowy figure is introduced? He's the man doomed to destruction. There's no point in fearing him, is there? This is the guy whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. There's no reason to fixate on that guy, is there? I've given a bit of stickers. We've gone through the books of Thessalonians to a a, a particular approach in theology called dispensationalism. And I still don't agree with it. There's one guy, though, who was quite a proponent of it, who said something really smart when it comes to this passage. And it was back at the just before the First World War, it was in 1930. not First World War, Second World War, 1933, the whole of Europe is starting to, people start going, Ooh, what's going on? And start playing join the dots with bits of theology, and, you know, the, the good game of pen the tail on the Antichrist comes out. Who can we find? And this guy was the editor of a magazine. And this is what he said. The editor, that's himself, has no use for day and year setters, nor has he any use for figuring out the duration of the time of the Gentiles, nor has he sympathy with men who prophesy that Mussolini, Hitler, Faisal, or any other person is the Antichrist. It is a morbid condition which seems to suit certain minds. We wonder whom they will name next. At any rate, why should a Christian have any interest at all in that coming man of sin? We have nothing to do with that lawless one. Our interest must be with Christ and not with Antichrist. I actually think that's pretty smart. Paul's intention in putting this forward is to say, don't stress. Yes, things are nasty. And they're going to get worse, even if you find it hard to conceive how that could be so. But all of that is in preparation for when they get glorious, when this world is done away with. There's a thing that happens again and again in the Bible, as God incites his enemy to come and do their worst. Whether it is Pharaoh, whose heart God hardened so that he came after Israel with everything he had. Whether it is Goliath and his outrageous boast, if you can beat me, we'll become your servants. Whether it is the Assyrian army who gathered around the walls of Jerusalem and called out, who can save you from my hand? And God wipes them out in a moment. That is the picture of God, isn't it? It's not that he manages to squeeze in a quick victory while they're looking the other way. He incites them to do their worst. And he's going to invite the enemy to do his worst and then show his best. Because God's best trounces anything. Why did I call this the final gambit? Because what we see in this chapter is the final gambit of an utterly overmatched and doomed foe. Paul says, until that gambit comes... You don't need to worry that something's happened without you getting the memo, Jesus victorious. Don't believe the lie. And don't fear the foe. Because Jesus is the victor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is mighty that with the breath of his mouth, the worst that the enemy can do is swept away. Lord, we thank you that in your outrageous mercy, you rescue us from being on the enemy's side to belonging to the Lord Jesus. You grant us A place in his victory. You grant us a security in our future that cannot spoil, that cannot fade, that nothing can challenge or threaten. Lord, as we face the godlessness of this world, as we see it ebbing and flowing, and as we know one day it will increase. Lord, help us not to believe the lie that this world is all there is, to lower our view of good until it is at best the yuck that is around us. To believe somehow that we are God even though we know we are not. Help us not to be deceived by the lie. Help us not to fear the foe but to know that Jesus is utterly victorious and that we are utterly his because of your grace and mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.